Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you on this last great day of the feast. I hope that your feast has been profitable and enjoyable and that you've grown spiritually during the last seven days. I know that we all tend to grow physically because of the abundance of physical food that we have at the feast. However, our spiritual growth and our spiritual understanding is obviously the most important reason why we're here at the feast and also why we observe this last great day. Brethren, for many of you who have been around for years, the final sermon on the last great day is really like preaching to the choir because you know the meaning of the day that we're going to rehearse in the sermon today. And we'll be covering some very familiar material for many of you. However, a number of you are new, and what we're going to be covering may be new and fascinating and exciting, and will offer a different perspective, a much enlarged perspective of the plan of God and how it relates to many other people that are not here at the feast. In fact, for those of you who may have lost loved ones in recent days or recent years, And for those of you that are encountering perhaps the loss of a loved one in the months and years ahead, what we are going to cover on the last great day is something that's going to provide hope and comfort, but not only hope and comfort, hopefully it will also provide an incentive for you to grow and endure and be in the coming kingdom of God. You know, for many young people who have not lived very long and are looking forward to living a full life, you may not fully grasp the significance of the meaning of the last great day, at least as how it relates to you and other people. However, I hope as a result of the sermon today, it will expand your perspectives. I was talking with a relative of mine some time ago who had recently experienced the death of his father. And for the first time, I think, in his life, he was beginning to ask questions like, why am I here? What happens when we die? Where did my dad go? And will I see him again sometime in the future? What I'd like to do in the sermon today on this last great day is to ask several questions of you. I would encourage you to think about them as we go through the sermon today. The first question is, do you understand the tremendous prophetic significance of what the last great day pictures about the God of the Bible, whom we worship, and also what it reveals about his all-encompassing plan of salvation and how it relates to the future of all mankind, in fact, of everyone who has ever lived. No matter how many times you may have kept the last great day, do you recognize the unique insight into the future that God has revealed to his church, a truth that the great minds and the great religions of this world have not understood and do not understand for the most part? How much do you value the truth that God has given to you, that he's revealed to your mind? 
Do you really value this opportunity to understand and share with the world this valuable truth of the future of all mankind? What I'd like you to do is think about these questions as we go through the sermon today. Because if we're not careful, we can let this truth slip away. We can take it for granted and let go and not fully grasp the meaning of it or appreciate the meaning of it. As we begin, I'd like you to turn to several scriptures just to notice how God views the truth that he's revealed to his church and it reveals to those whom he calls. If you turn to John chapter 8, John gets very profound in his gospel, explaining the significance of the truth that he reveals, that God reveals to his people. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with a multitude of people. And he says to them, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free or make you free. It's the truth of God that God reveals to those that he calls that literally sets them free from the ignorance, from the confusion, from the uh, deception that so permeates this world. Jesus is saying, you will know, those of you that I call, those of you that I reveal my truth to, that truth will set you free. It will open your understanding to the plan of God, the purpose of human life. If we turn ahead to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Now this is information that Jesus was discussing with his disciples the night before he was crucified. In John chapter 14, verses 15, 16, and 26, he says to his disciples, If you love me, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray or ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that that helper may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Talking about the Holy Spirit, that the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, down in verse 26, Jesus also says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he or it, will teach you all things. God's Spirit will teach His disciples all things. Later that evening, in this discussion, in John 16, verse 13, Jesus again describes this quality, uh, this power of the Holy Spirit. He says, However, the Spirit of truth, when the Holy Spirit has come, It will guide you into all truth. Now, the King James uh, uses the pronoun he, but that uh, pronoun he is describing a masculine word. As many other sources show that the Holy Spirit is a power. It's not a person, but the pronoun he is used because the Greek word for uh, the Holy Spirit is a masculine word, so they use the masculine pronoun. But what he's saying is the Holy Spirit will guide you, the disciples of Jesus Christ, into all truth. It will open your mind to understand the truth of the Bible. In John 17, verse 17, this is a prayer that Jesus Christ offers at the end of his instruction to his disciples the night before he was crucified. 
And he's thanking God for giving him the disciples out of this world. In verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I don't pray for the world. God has a plan that's going to encompass the entire world. But at this point in time, he's praying and thanking God for the disciples that God gave him during his earthly ministry. In verse 16, he goes on and he says, They, his disciples, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But then he says in his prayer, Sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctify means set apart, set apart for holy use. Set them apart by your truth because your word is truth. And brethren, it is the truth of God, the truth of God in the scriptures that sets the disciples of Jesus Christ and the church of God apart from the other churches of this world. The truth about the Sabbath, the truth about the holy days, the truth about the plan of God, the truth about the purpose of life. And as we will talk about today on this last great day, the truth about what is going to happen to those who are not called in their lifetime, who don't understand the truth of God now or during the times in which they are living. But God does have a plan that's going to relate to everyone who has ever lived. And that comes out in the lessons and the meaning of the last great day. This is an extremely valuable truth. And as we will see, most of the other religions, most of the other religious teachers simply don't understand that truth. And I want to demonstrate that in the sermon today. Several other scriptures that basically say the same thing. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is writing here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the members of the congregation in Corinth. And he mentions to them in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. He says, we, and he's talking about the uh, apostles, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. In other words, we're talking about the truth of God, but it's a mystery to the world. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. That God had a plan from the very beginning. It's a mystery to the world, but God is opening that understanding to his church, which none of the rulers of this age knew, or the thinkers, the leaders, uh, the opinion leaders, the knowledgeable people of this world, they simply don't know. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Human philosophers have not come up with an answer of what is going to happen to those who do not believe in the gospel, who believe in Jesus Christ. But the Bible reveals those things. Down in verse 14, Paul says, But the natural man, the carnal human being, a person without the Spirit of God and without the understanding that that Spirit imparts, does not receive the things of the Spirit, for their foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because these things are spiritually discerned. Someone has to be called. Someone has to be given God's spirit in order to understand some of the fundamental truths of Scripture. Paul was really me- merely repeating what Jesus Christ had told his own disciples 
back in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 10. It says, The disciples came to him, Jesus Christ, and said, Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answered to them and said, Because it has been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. You have been given understanding of what is a mystery to the world. But to them, those other people that are not being called, Jesus says, this understanding has not been given. And then he quotes a number of scriptures from the Old Testament that say pretty much the same thing. Down in verse 16, Jesus said, but blessed are your eyes. The word blessed in the Greek means to be envied or fortunate are your eyes. You've been privileged to understand something that many others have not. Blessed are your eyes, fortunate, privileged are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus then explains in John chapter 6, that in order to understand the spiritual dimension, the spiritual foundational doctrines in the Bible, a person has to be called, their mind has to be opened by God through the power of his spirit. In John chapter 6, Jesus was speaking to people who were following him. But he makes this statement in verse 44, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, calls him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Then Jesus gets very spiritual in the uh, succeeding verses, the following verses. talks about you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. In other words, you've got to internalize my teaching. You've got to understand them and internalize them in order to be part of me. In verse 64, it says that there were some who did not believe. Uh, In verse 65, Jesus says, Therefore I have said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Your brethren, if your mind has been opened to understand the truth of God, the purpose and the meaning of the holy days, and what we're going to be talking about today, about the meaning of the last great day, God has granted you a gift. God has granted you a special understanding that the world doesn't have right now, but the world will have during the time pictured by the last great day. So Jesus' comment here, Therefore I have said unto you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And notice in verse 66, From that time many of his disciples, many people who had been following him, partly out of curiosity, maybe some were critics, Some were wondering what this is all about. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with them. They came to the conclusion, this is beyond me. I can't make any sense out of this. I don't understand this. They were not being called at that time. But as we will see, God has a plan and he has a purpose. That's going to relate to these people at a point in time in the future. So what about these people who didn't understand? Jesus didn't go running after them and say, wait, 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 slow down, wait, 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 let me explain this. You You didn't get it, let me explain it again so hopefully you'll understand. 
No, Jesus knew that God had a plan and a purpose for those who were not being called at that time. But the question I think we need to ask and think about, because many religious leaders have thought about these issues, what happens to a person that is not called? What is their fate? Are they going to burn forever in hellfire? What is the fate or what is the future? What's the outcome for people who have grown up in countries around the world that have never heard the name Jesus Christ? People that grew up anciently before Jesus Christ was even born. What is their future? What is their fate? Are they lost forever because they never heard the gospel? They never understood about Jesus Christ? They never gave their heart to the Lord, so to speak? What is the future for those people? You know, many religions today teach that if they've never heard of Jesus Christ, if they've never been converted, if they've never been saved, then they're lost. They're going to burn forever in hell. But is that true? You know, many thinking people understand that, you know, if there is a God, if there is a God, and if this God is supposedly a God of love, how could he condemn billions of people to burn in hell forever if they never heard? That kind of God is certainly not fair. So what is going to happen to these people? As I've mentioned, many people, many theologians have wrestled with these ideas. Philosophical minds have wondered what is going to happen to people that, that aren't Christians, that never become Christians, that have never heard of Jesus Christ. Many great minds have wondered and pondered these questions but the Bible actually reveals what is going to happen to these people and what God's plan for all mankind is all about. In the sermon today, on this last great day, this last great day of the feast, I want to look at some of the ideas about what happens to people that have grown up in a non-Christian world, people who have never understood the truth, and I want to show how God's plan of salvation applies to them. And also I want to show how humanly devised ideas, people have tried to figure out, you know, if God is fair, then what's going to happen to these people? I want to show how these humanly devised ideas contrast with the truth that is revealed in the Scriptures. Because as Paul said, that human beings have never come up with the real answers to questions like this. I've entitled the sermon, The Last Great Day in a non and the Non-Christian World. Or you might even have some subtitles, The Last Great Day and the Fate of Unbelievers. What is their fate? Or another subtitle might be, What Happens to People Who Aren't Called Now? What Happens to People That Were Never Called? What Happens to People Who Never Heard of Jesus Christ? who were never saved in that sense. Let's notice first a couple of scriptures that will help us understand why the Christian world has taken the position that it has, or many people claiming to be Christians have come up with these ideas that you're going to burn in hell if uh, you've never been saved. If we go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Peter was speaking to people shortly after the crucifixion and the resurrection. <clears throat> he was arrested for preaching and also for healing a man. He was arrested by the Jewish authorities. 
He's brought before the Sanhedrin, this governing council in Jerusalem of religious authorities. And he says to them, let's break in here about uh, verse 10. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name Jesus Christ, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You're looking directly at these people. Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you today. In other words, we healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the stone, talking about Jesus Christ, was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now notice in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What Peter is saying, there is no other way that a person can be saved without believing in Jesus Christ and understanding his mission and why he came. That is extremely plain. Now, you can look up a number of other scriptures. Let me just give these to you that explain very clearly that there is really only one way that leads to salvation. In John chapter 10, verses 1, 7 through 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If you want to go into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to come through this door. You've got to come through me. You've got to follow my teachings. You've got to follow my example. I am the door. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. This is, this is a messianic claim. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He said, I am the light of the world. In John 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I came as a light into a world of darkness. What he's saying is the world is in darkness. But I came to bring light into the world because I am the light of the world. He didn't say other religions were the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. In John 14, verse 6, let's just read that. We were there just a little bit ago. Jesus is talking with his disciples again the night before he was crucified. Jesus said to them, or said to him, when he was asked uh, some questions, Jesus said to him, I am the way. He didn't say, there's a way over there, there's a way over there. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth. There's not a bunch of truth over here and some over there and some over there. He said, I am the truth and the life, the ultimate way of life, the way to eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through my teaching, through my truth. This is the way. I am the way. So these are pretty exclusive claims. They're very clear. Biblical Christianity and the teachings of Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, are the only ways that lead to salvation. The only religion that claims that it actually has the truth. These are the biblical claims. Now I want to contrast what the Bible says with what some religions teach. It's interesting, if you look into Roman Catholic teaching, Roman Catholics will take some of these scriptures and then add a dimension to that. 
The dimension I want to talk about comes from a book entitled On Being a Christian by Hans Kung. Being a Christian by Hans Kung. Dr. Kung is a liberal Catholic theologian. He's a contemporary of the current pope. Dr. Kung is a liberal. The current pope is conservative, and they have some different views. But Dr. Kung explains where the Catholic teaching comes from that he describes. He says in 1442, at the Council of Florence, the Roman Catholic Church issued this uh, dogma. It said the Holy Roman Church firmly believes that none of those who are outside the Catholic Church, pagans, Jews, heretics, schismatics, can have part in eternal life, but will go into eternal fire unless they are gathered into the church before the end of life. In other words, unless a person comes to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and joins the Catholic Church, they will burn in hell forever, and they've got to come to that decision before they die. In other words, what he's saying, what the Catholic Church has said, is that all those outside the Roman Catholic Church are excluded from salvation. They're excluded from salvation. If they're not converted, if they don't come into the Catholic Church, they are excluded from salvation. Now, as we will see, Dr. Kong offers some other explanations, but this is pretty much the foundation of the statements that the current Pope has made. You know, he's made statements that uh, all other churches, aside from the Catholic Church, and he's specifically mentioning Protestant churches, are not real churches, are not valid churches. And his criteria is they can't demonstrate the apostolic succession, that their leaders have come directly from the apostles. What's interesting is Dr. Kung makes the statement in his books that the claims of the Catholic Church that all their leaders came from the apostles, he says, is based on fraudulent information, which uh, sets him at odds with the current pope and his ideas. But the point I want to make here is that the Catholic Church has taught for centuries that they are the one true church and there is no salvation outside that church. The Protestant position that many have taken is somewhat similar to that. Basically, their position has been if you die without accepting Jesus Christ, then you're going to be lost. You you don't have to join the, the Protestant churches necessarily, but if you don't confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, then again, how are you going to do that if you've never heard about Jesus Christ? But many of many Protestant churches basically teach that if you die without accepting Jesus Christ, then you're lost and you're going to burn in hell forever. That's why they're motivated to try and preach the gospel in all the world so the people are not lost. But, you know, one of the reasons that people are suspicious of Christianity, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, is that they can't reconcile how a God who is a loving God would assign people to burn in hell forever if they'd never heard of Jesus Christ, if they'd never been converted, if they'd never understood the truth. And for many people, this is a hang-up. They don't understand how a loving God could consign people to hell forever if they've never heard the truth. Now, many liberal scholars today, including Dr. Kung, have wrestled with these ideas. And they've come up with suggestions on their own of how 
uh, people who have never heard the gospel, who have never heard of Jesus Christ, might still be saved. Dr. Kong mentioned in his book that in the past, other religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, uh, other religions, Islam, for example, uh, how does all of this apply to them? Dr. Kung mentions that we, and he's talking about liberal theologians, modern liberal theologians today, he said, we have broadened our understanding, and there's actually a wealth of truth in other religious traditions, in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and other religions. And he says, you know, they're, they're legitimate religions. They're struggling and trying to understand God. Uh, and they are also recognized ways to salvation. Now think about the scripture that we just read. Jesus Christ said, I am the way. And there really is no other way apart from me. And yet modern theologians have come up with this idea because they're trying to uh, rectify how, how God can uh, you know, somehow save and deal with people who never heard of Jesus Christ, who never heard the truth. He says these other religions are legitimate and they're recognized ways to salvation. And the bottom line here, what they're saying is, and trying to come to grips with is, look, if you're a good Buddhist, then you'll be saved. If you're a good Hindu, well, you'll be saved. You know, if you're a good pagan, you treat people nice, uh, you're kind, well, you can be saved. What that leads to, though, is why become a Christian? If you're a good Buddhist, if you're a good Hindu, if you're a good pagan, if you're a good witch, why become a Christian? See, this is where that kind of reasoning leads you. <clears throat> you know, what I've just described is an attempt by modern theologians to try and be more tolerant and more broad-minded and less exclusive. But there's not a lot of scriptural support for this idea. In fact, it flies in the face of scriptures. These are humanly devised reasons trying to explain how a loving God will eventually deal with people who have never heard the truth, who have never heard of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the big prob- another one of the big problems with this liberal, inclusive idea is that it overlooks major differences between non-Christian religions and the Bible, the teachings of the Bible. Let me just mention a couple of things very quickly. You you can be a good Buddhist as a nice person. You can be a good Hindu as a nice person. Uh, You can be a good Muslim and be a nice person. But the fundamental beliefs of these other religions stand in a stark contrast to the teachings of the Bible. You know, the thrust of Buddhism is to discover why we suffer. What is the cause of suffering? And how can you conquer suffering? And the solution is by following a series of steps, physical steps, that you develop right views, that you speak in a right way, that you eat the right diet, that you do the right things. You know, these are all human efforts, in this religion, actually a philosophy, there is no need of a savior because if you do the right things, you're going to achieve uh, salvation. In Buddhism, the goal of life is a perfect state of emptiness. 
that you want to achieve this perfect state of emptiness where you control all your passions. This is a very different message than the purpose of life is to become like God, develop the very mind of God, and reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. These are very different conceptions. In Hinduism, there is no specific God. It's characterized as an unlimited open-mindedness. It's able to assimilate all kinds of different ideas. And yet the Bible says, this is the way, walk you in it. It says, come out of this world. Don't be influenced by the ideas of this world. In Hinduism, there is no church, no mission. Redemption is actually being rescued from this endless cycle of reincarnation. See, these are very different concepts from what you find in the Bible. In Hinduism, there's no Savior. There's no God. The purpose, as I mentioned, redemption is being saved from this uh, endless cycle of reincarnation so that you can be eventually be absorbed into nothingness. Now, the Bible indicates we're going to have a body and a mind like God, like Jesus Christ. We've been created in God's image. We're to become like God, to gain spiritual bodies, to reign with Jesus Christ. The teachings of Confucius are basically principles of interpersonal relationships. It's a humanistic philosophy. Again, there's no God. It's a way of salvation without a Savior. A way of salvation without a Savior. In Islam, for example, conversion involves merely proclaiming that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And if you pray regularly every day, if you fast uh, once a year during Ramadan and you make a pilgrimage to Mecca during once in your life, that uh, you're achieving your goals. You've been converted. There's no repentance. There's really no Savior. There is a Muslim Messiah that is talked about, but when he returns, he brings Jesus Christ along as his helper. And this Muslim Messiah will bring peace to the earth. But again, there's no repentance. Uh, there's no building of character. It's a very different concept than what we find in the Bible. In terms of Protestant Catholic teachings, the teaching there in most cases is if you believe in Jesus, you're going to go to heaven. And according to Catholic teaching, if you want to be in heaven, you want to be saved, then you've got to become part of the Catholic Church. The Bible doesn't indicate that. The fate of the believers in Catholic theology and many Protestant theologies. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you don't give your heart to the Lord, then you're going to burn in hell forever. But the Bible has a very different concept. And again, we come back to these questions. What about those who have never heard about Jesus Christ? Your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, people that grew up in ancient Egypt, never heard about Jesus Christ, grew up in Rome and Greece, Never heard about Jesus Christ. Does God have a plan? And does God have a purpose that encompasses all the human beings that have been born from the very beginning? God does. Because God is a loving God. He has a plan and a purpose, and that purpose is pictured in the holy days. And this last great day, 
brings everything together of how God's plan relates to those who have never heard the truth. You know, your friends, your relatives, and people that have died down through history. Let's notice a couple of scriptures again. We get back into the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, actually verses 26 and 27, God is describing here human beings and the creation. Then God said, and the term here is Elohim, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them, that is human beings, have dominion over the fish, the sea, the fowls of the uh, the birds of the air, and over cattle and every creeping thing. Verse 27, So God created man, human beings, in his own image. We've been made in the image of God. In the image of God created him, uh, him, male and female. So God created human beings in his image. God is a loving God. If we go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we find another dimension that tells us something about God, his plan, and his purpose, and that he cares for human beings. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Peter mentions here, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God created human beings in his likeness and in his image. God is not willing that any should perish. God has a plan to bring all human beings to the point of repentance or to give them that opportunity to repent because God is fair and God is love. We go to first to uh, John chapter 3 and verse 16, a memory verse that many people memorize. But I want to put it in the context of this last great day and what is going to uh, happen and the opportunity that's going to be available to everyone who has ever lived. In John 16, 3, 16 and 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, a belief in Jesus Christ is going to be essential to gaining everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, some of these religions that we've just talked about have no need for a Savior. They have steps and and plans where you can work things out on your own to achieve this state of nothingness. But Jesus Christ came to give his life to set an example that we can follow. And because he gave his life for our sins, we can be saved. We can gain eternal life. But the way leads through Jesus Christ. We don't come up with it on our own. So God loves human beings. God has a plan of salvation for the entire world that's going to encompass all human beings who have ever lived. That plan is pictured in the holy days. You know, when people keep Christmas and keep Easter, these are pleasant times uh, when families can get together and then have an enjoyable time. But Christmas and Easter focus on, uh, at least as they have been Christianized out of the pagan world, they focus on the person of Jesus Christ, his birth and the person of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. 
But Christmas and Easter do not describe the overall plan of God, how it relates to all human beings. That plan is described in the biblical holy days that are outlined in Leviticus 23, that Jesus Christ kept while he was on this earth, that the apostles kept, the early church kept, until people were persecuted by the church that became the Roman Catholic Church because they were accused of following Jewish traditions. And yet the early church kept those holy days. The church of God today keeps those holy days. And it is the holy days that picture this plan of salvation that is going to encompass all human beings. You know, the Passover looked forward to the death of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who would come to this earth and die for the sins of the world. Not just the Jews, not just Israelites, but to die for the sins of all people who have ever lived. And as we keep the Passover every year as a memorial, it reminds us of this initial fundamental first step in the plan of God and his plan of salvation. The days of unleavened bread come next. And it involves putting sin out of our lives. This is the lesson we learn by putting leavening out of our homes for seven days every spring. In order to become spirit beings, to develop the mind of God, to receive God's spirit, we've got to repent. It's not just a matter of believing in Jesus. It's not just a matter of singing about his name. It's a matter of repenting, changing, turning around, going in a different direction. This is part of God's plan of salvation. The Feast of Pentecost pictures the outpouring of God's Spirit, that we need God's Spirit if we're going to grow and overcome. We need God's Spirit if we're going to develop the mind of God. We're told in Acts 5.32 that God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, we've got to repent and be baptized making a commitment to God that we want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We want to keep his commandments. We want to be a light to the world. This is part of this process, part of God's plan of salvation. In the fall, the Feast of Trumpets pictures the fact and reminds us of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth. He's going to take over the reins of government and set up a government on this earth. And he's going to reign with his saints and reward his saints with crowns and positions of rulership. That's what the Feast of Trumpets is all about. And it comes at a specific time after a series of events. It's not something that's just going to happen and nobody knows when it's going to happen. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 indicate there's going to be a series of recognizable events that will take place before Jesus Christ returns. And we're told to keep the Feast of Trumpets, to stay focused on this, to be reminded of this fact. The Day of Atonement. <clears throat> it's interesting to compare what uh, some of the Jewish encyclopedias have to say about this day and also what the Scriptures have to say about this day. The Day of Atonement pictures a time when Satan is going to be bound. This is not described in the Old Testament very clearly, but it is described in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Satan is going to be bound in this evil influence of an evil spirit being that has deceived the whole world, including all these other religions. Revelation 12.9, the states plainly Satan has deceived the whole world. We have some six billion or more people living on this earth and other uncounted millions of people that have died down through history. 
All these other religions are really the products of Satan's world, human reasoning, demonic influences in many cases. This evil being is going to be bound for a thousand years, the Bible indicates. And the Feast of the Day of Atonement is to remind us of that fact. It's something to look forward to. The Feast of Tabernacles for seven days in the fall pictures a time when Jesus Christ is going to return and set up this kingdom, this government on this earth, and bring peace to this earth. He's not going to help a Muslim Messiah do that. He's going to do it on his own. And you and I have been called to have a part in that, to reign with Jesus Christ, to teach the world the way to peace. This is an incredible plan, an astounding plan that is not pictured by Christmas and Easter, but it is pictured in the biblical holy days. But that brings us to the last great day, this eighth day of the feast. What does it mean? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Here we find the holy days listed in order. And again, not everything is revealed here. It does reveal the days. It talked about some sacrifices and offerings that were to be given, and this was in the Old Testament. Uh, underneath, under the New Covenant, these sacrifices have been basically done away with, with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But notice in Leviticus 23, um, Verse 34, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. The Feast of Tabernacles lasts seven days. On the first day shall there be a holy convocation, a commanded assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire. On the eighth day, so here's an eighth day after the seven days of the feast, you shall have a holy convocation, another commanded assembly. Down in verse uh, 39. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of your land, the Feast of Tabernacles is a harvest festival, a feast of ingathering, which has significance. You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. So the Feast of Tabernacles goes seven days. On the first day shall be a holy Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. So there is an eighth day that follows the feast. In John chapter 7, in John chapter 7, Jesus Christ actually went up to the feast in Jerusalem. He kept the Feast of Tabernacles. He spoke at the feast, but it was on this last day of this festival period, the eighth day. Uh, Jesus makes this statement. Verse 37 of John chapter 7, on the last day, that great day of the feast. And we will see in just a few moments why this day is called the great day of the feast. Jesus cried out and said, If anyone thirsts, come to me. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Again, this is a messianic claim. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the light of the world, the one that would provide uh, nourishment and provide water for thirsty people, the thirsty peoples of this world. This was a messianic claim. What does this last great day mean? You can read through 
Leviticus 23, and you won't understand what the last day of the feast is all about. The Israelites were instructed to build temporary dwellings, booths, that was to remind them of their sojourn in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, This wasn't the most pleasant time. The Israelites had disobeyed God, failed to follow his instructions, and they were told to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, God provided for them supernaturally. Their clothes didn't wear out. They had water to drink. They had food to drink. God dwelt with them symbolically in the uh, tabernacle. It glowed. You know, his spirit came there. Uh, So God was dwelling with the Israelites. But this wasn't the greatest time in the history of Israel. Many Jews today look back to that period of time as they're instructed in Leviticus 23. And they build booths, and that's kind of a highlight for many of the Jews that keep the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. But Leviticus 23 really doesn't say very much about the last great day, other than that it's the eighth day of the feast, actually a separate festival. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20, because here we can begin to understand what these last three holy days that come in the fall actually mean. This is a New Testament dimension that many Jews and Messianic Jews don't fully understand, especially if they're not using the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 20, the first four, three, first three verses actually, the first three verses, it talks about this is after Christ's return that uh, mentions it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is something that occurs after Jesus Christ returns. You go back to Leviticus 16, and it talks about uh, a goat that was banished into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. That's a parallel that fits with the verses that we're actually reading here. The banishment of that goat pictures the banishment of Satan, putting him away for a thousand years because he is actually the cause of the evils in this world. So this is talking about the, this is the New Testament dimension that we find that begins to explain and expound and expand the meaning of the Day of Atonement. Then, in beginning in verse 4 through verse 6 of Revelation 20, Says John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. They're going to be able to judge others, make decisions. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. People are going to be resurrected during that time, believers who have understood the truth, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark in their foreheads. And they, these people, involved in this resurrection lived and reigned, as other translations say, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the calling. That's the purpose of being called now. But notice in verse 5, and this actually should be kind of in parentheses, but the rest of the dead, people who had died prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, people who died prior to the development of Christianity as a religion, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. They're going to come up in a resurrection at the end of this thousand-year period. Then it says in verse 6, Blessed to be envied, 
privileged and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. This is the resurrection that occurs when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming. Over such the second death, this is death for all eternity, which indicates that the people that have died down through history and were not called have only experienced the first death, a physical death. They will not have experienced yet this second death for all eternity. But they shall be priests of God and of Jesus Christ and reign with him a thousand years. These are the people in this first resurrection. They come up with Jesus Christ to reign with him on this earth for a thousand years. But I want to focus again on verse 5. But the rest of the dead, who are these people? When will they come up? These are people, as I mentioned, that died down through history, that were not called, didn't understand the truth of God, maybe never even heard about Jesus Christ. See, God has a plan for people. God is fair. God is going to get everyone a chance to understand his truth. Then Satan is released for just a little while towards the end of the millennium, the end of this thousand-year period. And then he is going to be banished. But notice in verse 11 now we pick up the theme. And this is really talking about what is going to happen during this last great day period. This period of time pictured by the last great day, this eighth day at the end of the feast. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing, rising up, coming back to life before God. So here's a second resurrection, and this is really talking about the rest of the dead that was mentioned in verse 5. These are people that died, never knew the truth of God, never heard about Jesus Christ, were never called in part of, as part of God's plan. I saw the dead, the rest of the dead, small and great, standing, coming alive before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the books that were opened is the word biblos, from which we get our word for, for the Bible. The books of the Bible are opened, and then people are judged according to the word of God, whether or not they live according to the word of God. <clears throat> and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, in the books of the Bible. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will give you my spirit. You know, many people assume that judgment is they're going to be coming before the throne of God and God makes this sudden decision, looks at the books, says, you're bad, out of here. You're good, up here. But the Bible reveals that judgment is a process. You and I are being judged right now. Let's go to uh, Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Here we find judgment described in the Bible. <clears throat> you know, judgment is really a time of decision, a time when you have to make decisions, a time when God will make decisions, again, based on our works, based on what we do, based on whether we follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. 
Peter is addressing the early church, and he says, Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. Now, when you're called to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy. People might laugh. People will ridicule. You'll have to make decisions. You'll need to come out of this world, live a different sort of life, a life that is in harmony with Jesus Christ and his teachings. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. And the Bible says Christ was made perfect through his sufferings. He came to understand what we're going through. Therefore, he can be one who intervenes on our behalf with love and with understanding because he's been here and walked in the footsteps of human beings. But rejoice in the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Jesus Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But down in verse 15, it says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. (laughs) If we're suffering because we're guilty, then that's our problem, our fault. But if we're suffering from following the footsteps of Jesus Christ and his teachings, God notices those things and jots these things down in a book, so to speak. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed in this matter. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. See, we're being judged now. God is watching to see if we compromise our beliefs, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, if we come out of this world, if we follow the instructions of Jesus Christ. For the time has come, Peter is saying to the congregation there, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? In other words, judgment is a process. We're being judged now. People that are called and given an understanding of the truth during this last great day, this period of time, they're going to have some time to make decisions, to learn to live God's way, to compare the results of a good decision and a bad decision. How much time will they have? Now, the Bible is not explicit, but it does make some suggestions. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 65, this is talking about a time in the future. It says, no more shall an infant there live but a few days nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years of age. In Isaiah 65, 20, it mentions here a time frame. It says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years of age, and the sinner, being a hundred years of age, shall be accursed. So the Bible indicates there is going to be a hundred-year period. And that seems to fit right at the end of this thousand-year period that would allow a period of time, a hundred years, roughly a lifetime, for people to be resurrected, have an opportunity to learn the way of God, to decide to live by the ways of God or decide not to. This is going to be their opportunity for salvation. Greeks and Romans, Egyptians, Babylonians, People who lived, never heard the name of Jesus Christ, will hear the truth. They'll be exposed to the truth of God. They will learn about the mission of Jesus Christ, that he came to become the Savior of the world, and that we are all sinners, 
and that we need someone to save us from those sins. Yet God has this incredible plan, this incredible purpose that no one will be lost in that sense or have no one will not have the opportunity of salvation. God is a loving God. God created us in his likeness and in his image for the very purpose of becoming part of his family. It is not his will that any should perish. But there is only one way. There is only one way that leads to salvation. The Bible is very clear. And God is going to make an opportunity for everyone who has ever lived to understand that incredible truth, to understand his plan and purpose, to repent, to change, and to grow. Brethren, that is what is pictured by this last great day. It's a time when anyone or everyone who has ever lived is going to be resurrected, have a chance to understand the truth of God. You know, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors who may have died, not being called, not understanding the truth of God, people in historical times in the ancient past that never heard about Jesus Christ are going to be resurrected. They're the rest of the dead will be resurrected at the end of the millennium, have approximately 100 years in which to learn the truth, make decisions to grow, repent, and change. God is a loving God. He gives us his plan and purpose that's pictured in his holy days. He gives us the holy days to understand that, to be reminded of that. And this last great day pictures how this loving God is going to give all human beings an opportunity to understand his truth. Brethren, I hope as we go home from the feast that we have been fed spiritually, that we can go home with an understanding of this incredible plan and purpose, that we can appreciate the unique opportunity that you and I have been given to understand this plan of a loving God. Brethren, I hope you have a safe trip home, that you'll take home with you spiritual lessons that you've learned and they will be back next year at the Feast of Tabernacles, ready to learn and grow even further. Have a good trip home.